We thank you, Lord, so much for this evening. And Lord, we thank you for your grace and love in our lives. And uh, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship you. Father, we pray that you would just go before us, Lord, as we get into your word, that we would desire and that we would hunger to grow, to know more, uh, to be able to apply what we are learning, what we are reading. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give us a wisdom and understanding in your word. Uh, Father, I thank you for these that are here tonight, Lord, that have made it a point to be here. And I just pray that you would bless them for that and give them an awareness of what we're reading and just help them to continue to grow in you. Father, again, we thank you for this worship that we've been able to experience tonight so far with lifting our voices in praise to you. Lord, it's amazing to think about that one day that we will stand before you as we talked about this morning and as we spoke about uh, in the weeks past, that one day, whether you come and get us or we will go to you, we will shout praises before your throne. One day, we will sing before the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And, and we will join with the angels and the voices of heaven as saints of, of old uh, will sing praises to you, Lord, as well. And uh, what a day that will be. Uh, but Lord, I pray that we would know that we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to experience that praise. We can see just... Yes, Lord, maybe a sample size of that, but we can still participate in worship today or right now in this gathering as we worship you. And Father, I pray you'd use it to strengthen us and give us encouragement and help our hearts to be strong in you in the day and age where there's a lot to be fearful of. I pray that we'd keep our eyes on you. Father, again, we thank you for all of this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I do have some handouts for you guys. If you need a pen, I can give you one of those as well. There's also clipboards up here. If you need a clipboard, they're in the box over here. If you would like something to write on. Um, there you go. Four. <laughs> one more. All right, there you go. There you go. All right, cool. Good deal. Hey, I understand that. Can you hand that down there, please? There's another one, thanks. TJ. <laughs> All right, there you go. Was Jeff right here somewhere? Okay, well, if he comes back. All right, so Psalm 41 again. Um, we kind of opened it up. If somebody wanted to recommend a psalm or things like that, we just kind of put it on Facebook there. So uh, we had a few psalms come in as far as options, and so this was one I believe was on there. Um, and so if... Uh, if you want to take a few moments, we'll go ahead and work through the text. As we said before, really what you're doing is looking for repeated terms, uh, names, places, anything that jumps out to you, um, adjectives, things that individuals are doing. One thing I want to encourage with this one is maybe take a moment and look at, and I try not to do this too much. I don't want to say too much beforehand, but look at the actions God is taking. Look at the actions that the Father is taking. So that might even be something you might want to note on that. So take a few moments. Make some notes, some observations, and then we'll go from there. And I think we got a little music. Yep. What? That's fine. No, you're good.
All right. <clears throat> well, we'll go ahead and, and jump in. So if you didn't get all the way through that, I apologize, but pray it's an encouragement to you. Um, and just a reminder as well, uh, the reason uh, we're doing this, the reason I want to take time and just let you work through the text is because I want you to see that, that God's word can speak to us just as we just read it. Um, this is in no way to say that we don't look to commentaries or great authors or great teachers or study Bibles. Those are all really good things. It's all good. But sometimes it's really fruitful to first, the first step we do with scripture is just read the text. Um, I, I don't know about you, but the first time I got a nice study Bible, it was a, a NASB, which is New American Standard um, Study Bible. And it just, the commentary was amazing. And I, I found this habit where I would read a verse or two. And if I came across something I didn't quite get, I instantly just jumped down to the, to the commentary. Because I was like, hey, this will tell me what it means. And that's fine. But I found myself relying more on the commentary than what the scripture was actually saying, which again, it's fruitful, but it can also be damaging. Um, I remember I was in a classroom time in college and the professor was teaching on something and I can't remember what he was talking about, but he referenced something about what a verse meant. So he referenced the passage and they said, this is what it means basically and interpreted it after class. I happened to be up near the front and this young man comes up and he had his Bible with him and he says, I happen to say, I disagree with what your interpretation of that passage was, and the professor was okay, which I always found it really funny when a freshman undergrad student goes to a person with like, you know, two masters, a doctorate, and 40 years of pastoral experience and says, I think you're wrong on this one. I always found that a little bit like, slow down, maybe you should listen more than speak. But um, he went up there and he said, I have a problem with this. And he said, well, what's, what's the issue? And the kid opened his Bible and read the passage and then said, and I think it means thus and so. And the professor said, okay, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And he goes, well, see here. And he took him to the study Bible. He said, see here, it says this. And the professor said something that stuck with me. And again, I don't remember what the verse was or that, but he said this, he pointed out the study Bible. He said, this is opinion. This is God's word. You can disagree with this. You can't disagree with this. But that individual had it in his mind. Well, but it's, but this is what the Bible is saying. Well, no, that's what some authors who put together a good commentary. It might even be a good resource. So we need to understand. We go to Scripture. We let Scripture speak to us. All right? Um, I'm going to get you guys a couple of handouts there. So, just so you guys have a copy. I don't want you guys to feel left out. Don't copy off of Jeff, though. you got to do your own work. So again, what we're doing, we're just going through Psalm 41. Uh, we're just looking at the verses as a whole, and then uh, we're giving you opportunity to just mark those pages up. Mark up that paper I gave you, make notes and observations as you go through it. Um, and maybe when you do your own personal studying, uh, get a notebook, get a pad of paper, get something, your phone, a tablet, whatever, and maybe do this, like pull up on that device, this passage, and then you can work with the text and highlight things and all those kind of things. So I encourage you to do so. All right, let's jump in. So Psalm 41, I want to ask a question real quick, and then I won't answer it just yet, so you don't answer it yet, but I want you to note something. There's, I mentioned this before, there's hinge points in Psalms. A lot of the Psalms have these, I should say, not every one probably, but a lot of them have what I call hinge points. It's where the psalmist makes a turn towards God, makes a turn towards, I'm going to think about this in a godly way, or I'm going to look at this situation in a godly way. So I want you to take a second. Uh, just real quick, I want you to just to mark where you think the hinge point in this psalm is. Where you think the psalmist makes a deliberate change 
So either I'm going to think about this the way God thinks about it, I'm not going to think about it the way the world thinks about it, or I want to have a godly perspective on this, or however we would phrase that. It's where the psalmist makes a decision to change his thinking about the situation. So take a second, just real quick, you note where you think that is in the psalm. We'll come to a point where I'll tell you where I think that hinge point is, and I'm just curious to see how the Lord will work that out. All right, so jumping in. Um, Psalm 41. So this is a psalm that you can identify as a psalm of trouble and trust when others are untrustworthy. So as I was reading through this and thinking about this psalm and kind of how it jumped out to me, I see this as a psalm of trouble and trust. So when there's trouble in my life, who do I trust? When others in my life are untrustworthy. Okay? Uh, And I think we see that in this psalm. Now, this psalm takes place most likely, again, it's written by David, and it takes place during the rebellion of Absalom, Absalom, his son, which we referred to a couple weeks ago. Um, This, again, is just an idea. We don't specifically know, but we have a pretty good idea, and I'll get to that in a minute, where we and why we think that. Uh, Also, uh, we'll see that this psalm has messianic overtones. Now, what does that mean? It's not messianic in the sense of a direct prophecy, like some prophecies in Scripture are like, this is clearly speaking of Jesus, right? Um, But this one has something in the psalm that hints at, kind of speaks to something in the Messiah's life that we're going to find out when we get there what that is. But that's why it's, it's kind of got a messianic overtone. There's a hint of something in here that's not directly or rather only tied to the Messiah, but does connect to the Messiah in some ways, okay? Which we know is obviously Christ. And then also, I encourage you to take note of the action that God takes in the psalm, or that the psalmist is asking God to take, as another we could say that, okay? So that's kind of an overview. So let's jump in. Verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. I'd love to have somebody maybe read those for us. And so right off that copy I gave you, if you want to read the first Three verses, maybe somebody that would like to read that for us to get us started this evening. Who'd like to do that for us? Julie, awesome, thank you. Okay. So a couple things jump at us real quick. We see a lot of action that, that God is going to take or that this person who's being blessed is going to take. Okay, so that's how the psalm starts. Blessed is he. So now, we talked about this before. Where do our minds go with this word blessed in specifically psalms? We talked about another psalm that starts this way. What psalm did we look at that starts this way? Psalm 1, right? That's pretty, pretty straightforward, right? Psalm 1, 1, our mind goes there, so you can make a note anywhere off to the side with that word blessed. Uh, Psalm 1, 1, and then Psalm 32, 1. Psalm 32, 1. We referenced those when we were talking about Psalm 1. Uh, this is the idea of being blessed, and it means what when applied to mankind. What did we say this word means, or how would you translate or Define this word blessed to someone when it's talking to a human being being blessed. What did we say this referred to? This idea of being blessed. How would you define that? Jesus says in the 
Sermon on the Mount, blessed is he who, and he goes through the Beatitudes. What did he mean when he said blessed? Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's happiness, right? Which I feel like we're in a church culture today where it's like we don't want to say that because we sound like that, the fringe, you know, God always wants to make you happy kind of group. Uh, but I like what you said there. It's, it's happiness, but it's the deep-seated joy, right? Another way we could say it is it's, it's non-circumstantial happiness. It doesn't matter what circumstance I'm in. I'm happy. I'm content, as Paul says, in whatsoever thing, right? Whether I'm hungry, the actual translation is probably better, starving. Paul says, whether I'm starving or I'm so full, I couldn't eat another bite. Those are pretty big extremes, right? We were able to go to a a birthday thing today, and there was like authentic Mexican. And this is like two weeks in a row we've had authentic Mexican. I was in heaven. I was loving it. I was like, this is awesome. So it was really good. But I got to the point where I was like, I'm done. Like, I cannot have another bite because I just need to be done. So there's that, that sense of whatever extreme we're in, we're content. Why am I content? Paul says, I've learned this because I have Christ. If I have Christ, whether I'm starving, right, or whether I'm stuffed, I'm content because I have Jesus. And so that's that, that deep-seated joy, that contentment is that happiness that I find only in Christ. So again, happiness beyond circumstance, right? Here, some suggest that David is making the point when he opens up with this idea of blessed is he that considereth the poor, right? This, this idea of considering those who are impoverished or the, the poor. Some have opened or said that David opened up this way to point out that we cannot call on the mercy of God for ourselves without being willing to show mercy to the poor. So some have said the reason David opens up this way is because he's trying to get us to think, Lord, I can't ask you for your mercy if I'm not being merciful to the poor in my life or in my circumstance or my situation. Others have suggested uh, that David is actually the one who is poor in this passage. That when he says, blessed is he that considers the poor, David is saying, I'm the poor one. And Lord, I'm asking you to consider me. So that's kind of the two ideas that I came across in studying this psalm. It's either David saying, Lord, help me to be merciful to the poor so that I can now ask you to be merciful to me, right? Because I can't really ask God to show me mercy if I'm not willing to be merciful. Jesus said that again in the Beatitudes. Or David is saying, I'm the poor one that needs care. I'm the poor one that needs your help, Lord. And blessed be the Lord, which he ends the psalm that way, doesn't he? The very last verse of the psalm says what? Blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So some have said, blessed is he who considers the poor. Lord, I'm the poor one, and you are blessed because you're considering me. You're caring for me, which we'll get to that word in a minute. Some others have said, it's both. It's David saying, humanly, I need to think of the poor because God has been so good to me. And David is also saying, I'm the poor one that is in deep need. This again ties back into what Jesus said. And again, I believe we're okay in the text to do this. Uh, Jesus said, blessed is the poor in spirit, right? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's realizing that on our own, we're spiritually bankrupt, right? We don't have anything to offer God spiritually. I am poor in spirit. I I don't have anything. I need mercy. I need grace because I have nothing to offer, okay? So some have said, maybe that's where David was going here. Again, whatever version you want to look at or whatever way you want to look at it, I think I tend to agree that this is David speaking of himself. I am impoverished, Lord. I need you to consider what I'm going through. 
Two words worth noting in verse 1. I hinted at them already. Uh, you can circle these or highlight these somehow. Uh, considers or considereth. Considereth. That means to be attentive to. To attend to someone. To attend to a situation. And another word we referenced is poor. Now, this is not just meaning uh, material poverty. It's not saying I'm poor because I don't have financial resources or I don't have a house or I don't have this. It actually speaks to the idea of being helpless. Okay? So caring or giving care to someone and being attentive to someone is the idea of considering. And then poor is speaking to the idea of being helpless. I don't have any ability to take care of my own needs. Okay? And again, uh, David is going to share that, humanly speaking, he feels this way. All right? Uh, David also speaks with confidence regarding what God is going to do. Uh, the poor, from verse 1, when you, I asked you to kind of look at this. Uh, there's a few things that happen here in these first few verses. What is this poor person, what is God or the one who is blessed going to do for this poor person in the, verses 1, 2, and 3? What do we see him doing for him? This one who is being blessed, who's considering the poor, what is that blessed person going to be doing for the poor in those first three verses? Keep him alive, right? So keep, spare his life, okay? So right before, at the end, verse 2, we also see it says, will not deliver him to his enemies. So he is preserved, kept alive, blessed, not delivered to his enemies, and strengthened. So again, I think when we read the psalm and we read the heart of David and what he's going to say he's going through with these enemies we're going to get to, I tend to believe he's saying, Lord, I'm asking you to do this for me. I'm asking that you would preserve me. I'm asking that you would keep me alive, that you would not allow Absalom to take my life. I'm asking that you would bless me, that you would not deliver me to my enemies. And so again, I, I tend to believe this is a cry of David's heart. Uh, as, as well, we read here, uh, again, these are the things that David is going to pray for himself. Also note in verse 3, uh, he talks about a time of sickness. Okay, um, It says, the Lord strengthened him upon the bed of languishing. Now that sounds foreign to us. If you have a different translation, it may translate that differently. In some translations, it said sick bed. Okay, sick bed. What do we mean by somebody who's on a sick bed? Okay, could be when you're, you feel like you're going to die, right? Or you actually are dying. It's this idea of just weak, right? You're just whipped by this sickness, whatever it is, okay? If it's for a woman, it's probably a very serious disease. For a man, it's probably a cold, okay? It just depends on who you're talking about there, okay? Because men are, you know, we're really tough like that. We handle sickness real well, not really. Um, so, and when you think about this, David is saying, man, I'm on my sick bed. I'm in this bed of languishing. I'm, I'm just whooped by this thing. And he's actually saying, as I'm in this sick bed, as I'm dealing with this, I need special care. I need you to come and strengthen me. You can make a note there that this idea of strengthening or one that is coming to strengthen is a kind nurse. So the idea is a kind nurse. Yes. My um, translation says the Lord Yep. So it's this idea of somebody who comes when you're, you're sick, you're tired, you're weak, and this person comes in and just cares for you. Okay? Just takes care of your needs. Some of you have done this for loved ones. Uh, some of you have done this for family members or, or those that were in need. It's always amazing to me this, this idea is all throughout Scripture. Being there for the poor, being there for the sick. 
Why do you think, side note, I guess, and there's really, I don't think there's a black and white right answer here, just your opinion. Why do you think God, in his word, from Old and New Testament, remember, caring for the poor, caring for the sick, that's not a New Testament only thing. This is an Old Testament thing as well. Why do you think God makes such an emphasis on that idea of caring for the poor, caring for the sick, serving them, ministering them? Why do you think God emphasizes that so much in his word? Yeah. Okay. That is the bigger issue, right? Yep. Okay. So like when he says to the man, you know, or to the crowd, what is easier to say, get up your bed and walk or forgive your sins are forgiven? Well, get up and walk and your sins are forgiven, right? He was comparing those two, the physical and the spiritual. I can heal you of your sin just as easy as I can heal you of your physical ailment. Again, that connection, like what you're alluding to. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? Yo, to glorify him, right? Yep. Yep, absolutely. Why else? Julie. Absolutely. So the humbling that we take place or that takes place when we serve someone else, whether it's self-sacrifice or putting our convenience aside or our comfort, it's also the humility of the person receiving the care because they know they can't take care of themselves. So they need to depend on someone else. And I love that, that it connects us to the serving of Christ, what he gave up for us and the love of Christ for us, right? That he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and he was willing to die even the death of the cross, right? Absolutely. Any other ideas about that? And again, this is just, as I was reading through the Psalm, kind of jumped out to me. Why else do you think this is such an emphasis in scripture? Serve the sick, serve the poor, minister to them. I love it. It's to glorify God as he reflects the spiritual healing we take. It's the humility and sacrifice we see in Christ that we get to experience. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Yeah. And we see that in James 2, right? You know, I'll pray for you, <laughs> be warm, be filled, but I'm not going to give you what you need. They're not going to hear that. It's just, it's just religious nonsense to them, right? So again, we need to go above and beyond and put the physical to it. The Good Samaritan was a great example of love your neighbor as yourself because he cared for the person above and beyond, right? Not just what he got out of it. And therefore, those carings will give us opportunity to share Christ, right? Absolutely. And when I was reading this, I just kept going back to that the more we understand the importance of ministering to those who are in need, the more we understand that we were the dead, we were the sick, we were the poor, we were the needy, and God did everything to rescue us. Like, we didn't 
earn it. We didn't deserve it, but he came anyway. And so when I serve someone who's poor, it's to remind me that I'm poor in spirit. When I serve someone who's sick, it's to remember that Isaiah says, by his stripes, you are healed. So again, it's not literal sickness in every sense or literal poverty, but it's to remind us of that spiritual connection, right? Which just, again, it's all throughout scripture so that ultimately we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, Peter says, and we run to him, right? To praise him and to glorify him. And the cricket said, amen. Yeah. Yes. Right. It's not real. It's not genuine. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, I get what you're saying. Like, do we really know? But I, I, I believe it does. I believe it brings joy. I think that's a, that's a praise offering. When I, when I choose to serve someone in the name of Christ, he says, if you give a cup of, a cup of cold water to this person, it's like giving it to me. So he's aware of those things, and he's pleased by those things. Is it, is it you know, meriting salvation? No, but it's something that is a fruit of that. And I think ultimately, when they see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven— it brings joy to his heart, just as the angels will rejoice when someone that is lost is now found, according to Luke. So I think it's, again, it's just that idea of knowing, man, I'm doing this for you, Lord, because you've done this for me. May it praise you and glorify you. Absolutely. Um, all right. So moving on through there. So we see this idea of this sickness and this idea of, of David feeling this way. Uh, this is not just a spiritual sickness, most likely. It is a literal sickness that David was really feeling this physical pain. Um, some tend to, again, place this timeline, and you can make a, jot, a note out somewhere on the side. Second uh, Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. So this is Second Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And so this is where David in 2 Samuel was unable to fulfill his kingly duties. And this is where when we read in the text that Absalom used that opportunity to kind of seize some control and to take some control. And so again, most people think that the reason David wasn't able to do that, he was sick, and that's what's being referred to here. So Absalom was using it as a way to kind of usurp some authority from David, okay? Um, and we're not going to turn there for time's sake, but again, I wanted you to write it down and, and look into that. Uh, either way, uh, this idea is that David is under great stress, okay? Lots of pressure, lots of weight on his shoulders. Um, I love, when I was looking at different translations um, of verse 3, um, I love how uh, the common English Bible translates verse 3. Uh, it says this, when it talks about the strengthening the Lord does on the bed of the sick, it says this, you will completely transform the place where they lie ill. You will completely transform the place where they lie ill. And I love that image that the psalmist is crying out and saying, God, I'm in this circumstance, but the bed may not change. My circumstance may not change, but you will change what's going on around me in the sense that you will transform this from a time of weakness and suffering to a time of strengthening and praising. And I may still be sick at the end of it, but that's okay because you're strengthening me, not physically, but spiritually. So I love the way it translated that. You will completely transform the place where they lie ill. 
So here we see the kind of setup. David's crying out for help. He needs help from the one who is blessed, which we believe is God. Now let's jump into verses 4 through 9. We're going to read quite a few verses, but this is kind of the next section of this psalm that we see kind of broken up. And we're going to see that this is a prayer of David. And this is where we're going to see him crying out for some things that connect us back to verses 1 through 3. All right. So 4 through 9, if I can get a volunteer that would like to read those verses for us, Danielle. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so as you're reading that, you should feel the weight of that, like just the lament on his heart. Um, And I love that he goes to prayer. That's huge. He's going to prayer. So is there a lot going on in David's life right now? He's sick physically, most likely, but he's also dealing with all this other stuff. And what do you love to experience when you're not feeling good? Stressful situations, right? Like you love it when you're not feeling good and you go to work anyway because you're trying to push through and then all this stuff happens at work and you're like, I don't want to deal with this on a good day, but I'm already feeling sick. So it's just everything's compiling on top of David. It's just all this weight. Notice the first thing that David does is call out in repentance. So if you didn't note that the first time, in verse 4, merciful, heal, and sinned. Those are the three things I would encourage you to jot down. He says, I said, Lord, so he's identifying, he's praying to the Lord, be merciful unto me, heal my soul, for I have sinned. So do you see that David's initial reaction, even though all this is going on, and we're going to read all of these enemies and all these whispers and all this, the first thing he does, he says, Lord, would you make sure that my heart is right before you? I have sinned against you. Would you show me mercy? Would you heal my soul? He's not asking for the healing of his sickness. He's asking for something deeper than that. Lord, I need to repent before I get to any other request, before I go any farther in this prayer. And I think it was Alistair Begg that was referring to the fact that when we pray, it's always healthy to start with repentance. We need to start there because guess what? There's always something we can repent of. There's always something I say, Lord, just be merciful to me. Lord, thank you for showing mercy to me. Uh, So he calls out in repentance before he asks God to work on his behalf. He repents of any unconfessed sin. So that is huge. Another thing I thought of when I was reading through here, my first thought when I saw that verse was that when we go through difficult times, it is good to pause and evaluate if this trial is the result of unconfessed sin in my life. Now, not all trials are the result of unconfessed sin. We talked about Job this morning. Why was Job tempted and tried and tested? Why was Job tempted? Was it because of sin in his life that he was tempted and tried and tested? No, it was actually because he walked with God, right? It's because he praised God and Satan said, if you take everything from him, he's not going to praise you. So it wasn't some sin issue in in Job's life. It was actually he was walking with God and God allowed trials in his life. But there are times where if we have unconfessed sin in our lives between us and the Lord and we put our heads down and we try to ignore it, God will bring trials from that. By the way, consequences just come from our sin, period. 
Because if I'm not doing it God's way and I'm doing it my way, that's not the best way. It's going to lead to problems. Maybe relationship problems, financial problems, physical problems, whatever it might be. Okay? Corinthians says that those that didn't eat of the Lord's Supper in the right way, many are sick. Weakly among you, many sleep. What does sleep mean there? Does it mean they fell asleep during communion? They died. You might think that's crazy. God would kill someone because they didn't take communion right. That's what the Bible says. That they died a physical consequence because they rejected communion in the right way. This shouldn't surprise us in the early part of Acts. Right? We see that Ananias and Sapphira, they're actually, their, their lives are taken. Now, I don't know. I tend to believe I like to believe they're in heaven. I don't think that means they went to hell. But they were making decisions that were going to distract and take away from the church. What God was trying to do in the early church. And God took their lives. Now, is it okay for God to do that? A hundred percent. Because he gave us our life. He can take our life. Whenever he chooses to do so. Whether it be through judgment. uh, Noah's Ark. Or whether it be through just natural causes. Whatever he chooses to do there. So here we see. This idea that, that David is crying out, Lord, is this because of my sin? Did I, did I sin in some way and therefore this is coming into my life? So he starts there, which is always good to do because it's good to stop and evaluate. Lord, if I have sinned, would you cleanse me of that sin? Also note, where does he go to with his repentance first? Who does he call out to and say, Lord, I've sinned against who? Who does he say he sinned against? God, right? This is huge. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easier to say, hey, I'm sorry I did that to a person than it is to God. Because sometimes it's going to God and saying, God, I'm sorry I did it again. (laughs) I, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that, whatever it was. And so many people will go to a person and say, hey, my bad, I'm sorry. But they'll refuse to go to God and say, God, would you just forgive me of my sin? Uh, Note the prodigal son, the famous line in the prodigal son's speech is he goes and he says what? To the father against you, right? Against heaven and against you I've sinned. But he talks about sinning against God first. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. So we acknowledge the people we sin against and we ask for forgiveness and we do what we need to do there. But he goes to God first because ultimately our sin is against God more than it is against another person or even against ourselves. It's against him first and foremost. So David again cries out in repentance. Then he moves to those that he believes are causing him all of his pain. Okay. Who does he identify causing him pain? Who's causing him pain? I'm sorry. Enemies. Okay. Now we said at the beginning, who is the main enemy, the main villain in this Psalm, if you will, most likely Absalom, but he's not the only one. There are others apparently that are involved in this whole thing. And we know from reading second Samuel that there are others involved in this big plot to overthrow David. So again, verse six, we read of someone that comes to him, right? And says empty words. Look at verse six. And if he come to see me, so he's on his sick bed, remember? And this person comes in. It's not Absalom, right? There's this other person that comes in and sees David. And what does the person do while he's with David? He speaks vanity. What does it mean to speak vanity? Okay, to hear things he wants to hear. Love that, right? The, one of the commandments is, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. We usually think that means what? Using the Lord's name as a curse word, right? Which it is, but it's so much more than that. The word vain means empty, 
No, no weight, no, no, nothing in it. It's just said. There's no heart behind it. So if I say the Lord's name, not as a curse word, but maybe at the end of a prayer, but I don't put anything behind it. I don't honor that name. I don't give reverence to that name. I just took the Lord's name in vain. This is why even in the New Testament, you could take grace and make it vain. How do we do that? We make it empty. Why? Because we think we're doing it in our own works. And we've made empty the grace that was given to us. So here, this man comes to David and speaks empty words, whatever he wants to hear. Then it goes on to say that this friend was so close. He's pretending to be a friend. He's really not, but he's so close. Verse 9 says that they shared fellowship. This is what is meant and referred to by the eating of my bread. He ate of my bread. It's fellowship. New Testament, right? There's this idea of communion. We gather over the Lord's Supper. Why? We, we break the bread and we drink the drink. And, and we do this as an act of fellowship together. Breaking bread is always a symbol of fellowship, close friendship. But this person is not truly, again, his friend. This could have been David's trusted counselor that we read about in Second Samuel. So someone that was there, supposed to be a trusted friend and counselor, giving him wise wisdom and, or wise counsel. And he's really just speaking words that are empty. He's really working and plotting against David, we find out in Samuel. So again, this person is a familiar friend. It says, yet he lifted up his heel against me. Lifted up his heel against me. Now, when I thought about that, I thought about someone kicking someone. That's just what came to mind. I was, that sounds pretty painful, okay? The phrase itself, uh, one of the commentaries that I was researching in, uh, used the term scornful violence. Scornful violence. Now, we read in Psalm 1 about the scornful, right? Those that are in the world's way of thinking. So what's David saying here? He's saying, I understand this more than you realize. Because a close counselor, a close friend, actually used that closeness to bring scornful violence against me. Wanted to do me harm. So again, let me pause here for a second. And we should be able to get through all of this. We might go a little past seven, but that's okay. We're not having service next week, so you guys will be fine. We'll just do a little extra tonight and a little extra the week after. So, um, and we'll make up the hour somewhere. So what comes to your mind when you think of someone in Scripture that had a close friend who betrayed him, who ate bread with him, and ended up saying all the right things, saying empty words, but really in the end turned his back on him? Josiah? He hung himself afterwards. Yes, you're on the right track. You know, okay, he betrayed Christ. You're so close, man. It does start with a J. Yeah, Judas. Yep, there you go. So Judas, right? So uh, somebody turn to John chapter 13, and you can jot this down in your notes as well. John 13 and verse 18. Good job. John chapter 13 and verse 18. And so what somebody's there, we'll go ahead and read that. Who's got it? The cricket's got it. Keith, you got that? Awesome. I knew you would. I'm ready. Go. Okay, so this is Jesus speaking to this psalm. Now, again, literally, I believe this is speaking of David, real people, real events, okay? David is not being figurative here with prophecy. But what Jesus was doing was reminding 
the people in that room, the group of disciples saying, listen, you know this story well. Every one of you know what happened to David. Every one of you know the sin of Absalom. Every one of you know how somebody that was really close to David rose up against him and betrayed him. And he was saying, by the way, one of you are going to do that to me. One of you will strike out against me and lead me to violence. And so again, I find it amazing that here Jesus references this idea. And it shows us that Judas and Jesus were much closer than what's portrayed. So many people portrayed Judas as this outlier guy out here who really wasn't close to Jesus. Now, we know he wasn't in the inner three, uh, which I always tend to argue it's an inner four. I know some people would argue with that, but I think Andrew was almost always there. He's just in the background. But he wasn't James, John, Peter, and Andrew. He wasn't in that inner circle. I understand that. But you always see Judas kind of in the mixed. He's a mix. He's always kind of there. He's always kind of got his ear in what's going on, right? Now, we know, we read it after the fact. He was greedy, right? He stole from the treasury of the disciples and all that because he wanted that. Remember, he didn't want the woman to give the offering because, hey, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. Really, he meant his own pocket, right? That's what John says. So here we see that Jesus refers to this as an example of somebody that was close to me, Close enough to know the truth. That's what I take away from that. Judas was close enough to know Jesus was really the son of God. To know he was the Messiah. And still chose to betray him. But said all the right things when Jesus was around. And so again, just pause here for a moment and think, this is the psalm that, Dave, or that Jesus referred to in the life of David. So, looking back at Psalm 41. Let's go back there quickly. So I want to note here, all the things his enemies are doing to him, saying about him, or wanting to have happened to him, okay? So these are mostly in uh, verses 5 through 9, okay? So here's the things. I just made a kind of some bullet points here in my notes. Here's the things they're saying about him. When will he just die? Right? When will he just die? When, we will forget, when will we forget his name? When will people stop talking about the name of David? They gossip about him. We see that at the end of verse 6. Everything that he gathers to himself, he tells it. He gets all this inside information. Then he goes and he blabs it all over the place, right? Using it against him. I've always said it is, it's true. Gossip is the cancer that will destroy a church. Like, so many people use prayer requests and other things to kind of mask gossip or talk about other people in the church. It will destroy a church. If we talk about each other in that way, we're not praying for each other the way we should. So there's gossip here. They hate him. They whisper about him. They plot and plan to hurt him. They want him dead. They want him to get a terminal disease. Like when will this disease just latch onto him and he'll never rise up again? These are the things that David knows they're saying about him. So that means there's maybe things that are happening that David doesn't even know is going on. These are the things he's aware of. So can you understand why David is feeling poor, or another word for the word poor is miserable? Like you're sick, you're on your bed, you feel beaten down by that, and then you're hearing all of this. And now your close friend, who's supposed to be there for you, is running his mouth, gossiping about you, plotting against you, getting other people to plot against you, want you to die, don't want you to rise up out of the bed. And all of this is just piling on and piling on and piling on. So I love what David does here. As he's going through all of this, he prays. The prayer continues in verses 10 and 11. And this is, if you didn't catch it, or maybe you weren't, you hadn't noted it yet, to me, verse 10 is the hinge point. Verse 10 is where the whole psalm turns around. So 10 and 11. But thou, O Lord, 
Be merciful unto me and raise me up that I may requite them. But this I know, that thou favorest me, because mine enemy does not triumph over me. So do you see the turn? I mean, you hear the lament in the previous verses. They want me dead. They want me to be hurt. They, wanna, they whisper against me. They want my name to be forgotten. But you, Lord, show me mercy. Again, what did he cry for earlier in uh, verse 4? Be merciful to me. Again, he's depending on the mercy of, the, of God. The key phrase is in verse 10, but thou. They're saying all of that. They're doing all of that. They're wanting all of that. But you, God, you want something different. You have a different plan. This is where the psalm turns back into, uh, or in its tone, turns back to verses 1 through 3, where David puts his attention on the Lord and off of those that would cause him harm. He calls out for mercy that only the Lord can give. If you're jotting notes there, Hebrews 4, verse 16. We call out to the Lord and for mercy, and in our time of need, he will provide it to us. And this is what the psalmist is doing. Hebrews 4 says to come boldly before the throne. This is what David is doing. God, I'm coming boldly because I need your mercy. So here we see he cries out for that. Notice that he prays this when he is still in the bed of languishing. He's still on his sickbed when he prays this prayer. Because he prays, raise me up, believing that God will bring the victory. We do not have to wait for God to change the circumstance to praise him. He knows, David knows, that God will not allow his enemies to triumph over him. So before the victory comes, before he sees the healing and the rising up out of that bed, before he sees what God is going to do, he's knowing, God, you got this. God, you're going to take care of this. He's trusting in his father. Why does David do this? Why does he trust so much in God? Well, the answer is in verse 11. What does he say that God has for him in verse 11? says, you favor me. You favor me. Now again, what does that word mean? It means a tender love and care. A tender love and care. Like that that a nurse would show somebody who's sick. Like that that we would show to the poor. A tender love and care. And again, this is a phrase that we hear. Um, I've heard people say it. You know, you are, you are or I am blessed and highly favored. I've heard that a lot. And I think we can forget why we're favored. I'm not favored because I've earned God's favor. I'm favored because I'm in Jesus Christ. And that's all I need. And that favor doesn't mean I'll always have money in my bank account that I think I should have. It doesn't mean I'm never going to get sick. It doesn't mean I'm going to have all my wants answered in the minute I ask for them. It means when I'm lying on my deathbed and people are saying the worst things about me, I'm favored in God's eyes. He's got this. Not fearful. I'm not worried about it. Then he closes... Oh, I'm sorry, uh, real quick. Psalm 8. Jot down Psalm 8. We studied that psalm a few weeks back. This is the idea of that care that he has for us. Then he closes in verse 13. Wait, did I not read verse 12? So verse 12 and 13. That's what it should say on my notes. So 12 and 13. One more volunteer that would like to read. One more volunteer who'd like to read that for us. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so this is a doxology. He closes with a time of praise. Okay, he's just choosing to end his prayer with praise. Uh, blessed here, 
in comparison to earlier, uh, we looked at that blessing as referring to mankind. If it's referring to man, it means this happiness that's beyond circumstance. If it's blessed referring to God, it means uh, and applied to strong praise. It's strong praise. We're, we're shouting praise to him. He is blessed. He is blessed. We're praising him. Here, David is praising the trustworthy name of God. And notice in the Psalms we've looked at over the last, I don't know, so many weeks, how often the name of God is the point. And we go back to that and we praise the name of God and we glorify the name of God. And it's all about looking at who he really is. That praise that David offers will be for how long? How long will we praise him? Forever and ever, from everlasting and to everlasting. There's no end to this praise. It's always going to be in the kingdom, in heaven. It's all about praising him. It will never end. And then he ends with the phrase, amen, which as we've said, means let it go forth. So let it be, so let it go forth. And so no matter our circumstance, David and we can choose to trust in the name of the Lord. When you notice that he says the Lord God of Israel, this is a covenant name. This is a name that says, God, you provided for the Israelites. You took them out of Egypt. You were with them. You provided for them. And I know you'll provide for me. I know you'll take care of me. That same tender care that you gave before the children of Israel, you will give to me. I love that phrase there at the end of verse 12. Set us me before thy face. Uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says this. He puts us under his watch and care. We are under his watch and care. And so in this life, we will have people treat us poorly. They will slander and gossip about us. They will wish us nothing but bad things. And when that happens, when people rise up against us and people are untrustworthy, and even those that are closest to us turn their backs on us, we will fix our eyes on the Lord of heaven and earth. We will remember that the Lord is attentive to our needs and cares for us. And as one commentary said, we are always under his tender watch and care. And so what do we do when everything is turning against us? When your closest friend, somebody that you care about, is really just stabbing you in the back? You realize it's not okay. You don't just turn a blind eye to it and say it's fine. We turn our eyes back to Christ and we say, you are the friend that is closer than a brother. You are the friend that I need when no one else is trustworthy. It doesn't mean we isolate and don't trust and have no friendships because that's one way people go. Well, I'm not going to trust anybody because everybody's untrustworthy. Well, that sounds like a very sad and sorrowful life. We were made for relationships. God created us for relationships. And guess what? When you love imperfect sinners as an imperfect sinner, something is going to go wrong. Someone is going to say something and do something that's wrong and hurtful. And it's okay to acknowledge that and say, this is wrong. But we need to realize that when that happens, it pushes us to Christ. Because he will never forsake us. He will never leave us. And so this psalm to me, there's so much here. And we could have probably went a lot longer in this. But I want to encourage you with what this psalm draws our attention to at the end. That at the end of it, no matter what we go through, whatever circumstance, whatever situation, he is over us. He is watching over us. And whether we're in a circumstance that we don't understand or we're on the mountaintops praising him, we can praise him in both situations and say, God, you are from everlasting to everlasting. Your glory will go forth and we praise you. Amen. Awesome. Yes, ma'am.
Right. Yeah. I mean, is this also maybe that? Not only like, right? I mean, like, and I don't know. That's what I'm asking. Sure. Could it be that we're, because like, what a huge blessing that is, right? Yeah. Like, to be able to see people come and face God. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so, like, right, so no matter what, I'm going to be sick and you can talk all you want, but I'm going to be before the face of God. Right. Yeah, I, and I, I, I agree with you. I think there could definitely be a connection there. Um, and I kind of see it as a twofold thing that, that in Christ right now, um, when I go to prayer and I say, my Father who art in heaven, and I'm in prayer, I'm spiritually before his throne. So I'm before his face. I can't physically see his face right now, but I'm before his throne because of Christ. I'm ushered into the throne room. But obviously, yes, when we see him physically, there will be that physical, I will gaze upon Christ. I will gaze upon the Father. So absolutely, I could see a connection there, both kind of in Christian life now and to come, for sure. Julie? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. And remember, David knew, David knew that, not, not in the fullness, but he knew there was a covenant that God made with him, that his king, uh, his, uh, his rule, his reign, his throne will continue forever. So it's almost as though David knows they're never going to triumph over me. Not just in this life, but in every generation that follows, they'll never overcome that Messiah that will reign. Yep. I, I agree 100%. No, absolutely. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments on the psalm that maybe... I didn't touch on. All right. So next week, don't forget, with Labor Day weekend, we will not have our Sunday evening service. The week after that, we will be outside. And so uh, we'll be doing service out there at the bonfire. And so we'll be back in here the week after that for normal service, if you will. Um, And so I want to encourage you to invite anyone you want to the bonfire in a couple of weeks. Um, We will do a devotion that will be very short, kind of gospel-centered and also a little bit of discipleship. But it's an awesome time to come together. Um, Again, uh, more stuff will be provided. If you want food or something, bring that for yourself. That's fine. Excuse me. And then... uh, Anyone that comes will be able to, to come and just hang out and have some fun and have a great night. So I'm praying for good weather, hopefully no rain. Um, it starts at 6. There's no end time. It's just really whenever anyone wants to, everyone wants to take off. So be up to date with the bulletin. I just forgot to do announcements, but, or I didn't really have time to do announcements, but uh, keep an eye on that. Um, ladies that are going to the retreat, don't forget, there's t-shirts. If you want to get a, a ladies retreat shirt, you can sign up for that. Men's Bible study, ladies Bible study, um, all kinds of opportunities to get connected and grow. Um, there's widows, widower's banquet. We're still looking for servers and helpers for that. I haven't checked after this morning, but if you want to help, we can always use more help. So maybe that's something you want to be a part of. Um, and then again, just Bible studies. I really want to encourage all the men and ladies to be a part of that. It's a great opportunity to grow in Christ with other men or women, depending on what group you're in. So, but if there's nothing else, we'll go ahead and pray and dismiss you guys for the evening. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for tonight. But Lord, ultimately, we thank you for your word. Uh, That's what this is all about, Lord. It's so amazing just to come together and just to read your word and let your word speak into our lives. 
And Father, we've all in this room experienced to some degree some of the things that David felt here. Uh, Lord, maybe not to the same degree, but Lord, I think we've all had a close friend that we thought was closer than they really were. We've all had things said about us. We've heard rumors about us and people gossiped about us. And Lord, my mind goes back to if, if people really knew us like you knew us, then they'd really have something to talk about. But Lord, I just am so thankful that even in the midst of our brokenness and our weakness, Lord, and the things that we go through in this life, that we can cry out to you because you understand what we go through. Now, we don't have a high priest who's not touched with the infirmities of our heart, our weaknesses. You know us, you formed us, you made us, and, and you know what we go through. And so because you know what we go through, you know that when we cry out to you for mercy and grace, that you will give us all that we need in the proper time. You will strengthen us even as we lay on our beds of sickness. And you will not allow our enemies to overcome us. And Father, that's because our, our human lives, our physical lives are not the end. They may take our lives, but if somebody takes our lives as a martyr for Christ, then we've only gained heaven. And so thank you for the assurance we have in your word, the confidence and the guarantees that we have in your word that remind us that when everybody else turns away, that you will never leave us or forsake us. And so, Father, I thank you for the psalm this evening. I thank you for the power of your word. And I pray that we would go from this place and desire every single day to spend time in your word. Because, Lord, it is the strength we need. There's so much going on in our world today. There's so many decisions that are being made ways that our culture is standing against the things of God. And Lord, we can get upset, we can get angry, we can get fearful, or we can turn to your word. We can realize that you're over all of this and that you're using all of this for your glory and that no matter what goes on in our circumstances, we can trust in you. So Father, again, thank you for all that you continue to do and show us. Go with us now, we ask. Give us an amazing week where we can just enjoy you, enjoy your grace, and enjoy the opportunities you give us to make you known to those around us. And Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.